Hey, group chat. I know y'all see my text. There's tea to be spilled. Each week, we're bringing you our unfiltered take on culture, news, dating, and our lives as Black millennial women. We're coming to y'all with the honesty and eye rolls that only a text chain with your girls can. This is Black Girls Texting with Chelsea, Glenn, and Shade. Welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Texting. I'm here with Chelsea Pinky. And if you're Hello. watching the YouTube, she's in a plant store. This is my bedroom. <laughs> this is my bedroom. Hello, everyone. Uh, how's it going? It's going well. I am working out of a hotel room for the next week. Living the life, ordering breakfast to the room. Ooh. Got my fresh squeezed juice. Oh, you can't even see it. Oh, it looks very fresh. Wow. Oh, she's quenching her thirst. Mm -hmm. Glenn is not here. Um, And I have to apologize to listeners because you probably have been getting a lot of, you know, episodes where it's like, Chode is not here. Chelsea's not here. Glenn's not here. But until we get free, <laughs> we we have to work. <laughs> yeah, you guys are going to have to share the podcast. Tell everyone you know. Put it in all your group chats, your family group chat, your friend group chat, your work group chat, all your group chats. All your group chats. Because the girlies, we got to maintain our nine to fives until the five to nine. That is basically the 24-7 really takes off. Um, yeah. But I'm going to jump in to On Red or Reply, unless you want to go first. You can go. On Red or Reply. All right. So I'm going to just really quickly leave On Red, just how insane last week was. Um, it was just so busy for me. Like, I had, I mean, I guess I brought it on myself, but I had, like, so many different events. Um, we had an event with fashion fair that was great, but also just like an, an added layer to just like the hecticness of the week. Yeah. And I, I guess I need to stop doing that to myself. Like, I just need to be like, sorry, no, I can't come to your event or like, I can't do this thing. Um, but it's this weird place of like, wanting to maintain a social life and also like support friends who invite me to things that they're doing because they come to things that I'm doing. So then I'm yeah. like, well, goddamn. But um, this week we will be in DC. You'll hear more about what we're doing probably on Instagram around the same time that this episode comes out. But I'm just like, whoo, week two of crazy. Here we go. Um, yeah I think that's definitely like an important note though like sometimes you got to say no yeah for sure for sure um my therapist was like so like when are we slowing down and I was like maybe in November I think November <laughs> she was like yeah mm. right and then November there's <laughs> trips being planned right exactly that. like it's you just have to like say no sometimes absolutely so Working on that, working on finding the balance. Right now, there is no balance, um, but more I think to come. having a partner makes it 
is making it harder for you because oh 100 percent I'm like the way you guys go out I'm like you don't want to stay home with your man a hundred percent no it makes it super hard because then we're all I'm also trying to figure out when we'll be together but the thing is during the week he's so like locked in because he gets up really early like he mm -hmm. usually will have sessions at like 6 30 in the morning so like he's in bed by the time I'm even done with work he's like getting ready for bed so it's already really hard yeah um but yeah that's an added layer like friendships partnership work podcast my own personal shit um yeah. so for all of you out there that are going through this I feel you and we will prevail but on a lighter note, um, I'm replying to my weekend. My niece was in town. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen that. Um, my sister went to go see Usher in Vegas, which I'm super Ooh. jealous. And I really want to go. I feel like we should figure that out. Like, yeah, they're on tour next year. Like, we should all go. Um, Did he extend it? I thought it was over. I think he extended it because my oh. friend was telling me that we should look at tickets for 2023. And I was like, oh, oh I'm very down. Yeah, I didn't. And it's close to me. I didn't do the research, but <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Um, it seemed like a lot of people had a lot of fun. Um, so while she was doing that, which is great, you know, that balance, that self-care, drop your kids off at the auntie house. <laughs> <laughs> she dropped my niece. Um, and I had, I have to shout out the village too. Cause like homies came over and we did like, pumpkin decorating and they hung out with her and were super sweet and so nice and then um another day my boyfriend and his friend we all took her to the lego store they took her to the park they were showing her how to skateboard may or may have not taken her to a bar it was outside <laughs> it was outside we were outside so basically it's like a restaurant um oh, yeah. She was showing them her games and I was just like, oh my God, like even when I have a baby, like this is so cool to see how like your homies like ride for you. They were like, is she good buying her snacks and treats and Shirley Temples <sighs> and playing Roblox with her? She was like having the time of her life. So that was really fun. Love to be able to link up with the fam. Um, eye opening in terms of not wanting a child anytime soon the the park was terrifying why was it terrifying because there's like all ages so you have like little tiny babies oh and then you have like her age she's like six and they're all just running and screaming <sighs> and I'm like oh my god every time I turn around I'm like oh Ooh, oh my god that little boy oh he just fell okay he's fine he's getting back up oh they're stepping on they're each other's tougher toes than they look. <laughs> I know, but it's <sighs> just like holy shit um so yeah yeah my boyfriend and I looked at each other like but god bless the parents god bless the parents well is that all that's all okay well I will also leave family time on reply I will reply to it <laughs> it's like um, <laughs> on what <laughs> I was not here this weekend. I was in Charlotte with my fiance's family. That was always, that was really nice. It's always nice seeing them. It felt super short. Um, so I'll reply to that. And then, oh, and while we were there, we had like Waffle House. We went to like this place that we love. It's like a 
they make like fried fish and fried shrimp and stuff and collard greens and macaroni and cheese and um the orange things what is it called what's yeah. the orange is thing it can't yams oh yeah yams um and i love that stuff um okay so that was that but i will leave on red something that is going on in our world so basically there are these challenges to race racial conscious admissions at harvard and unc have you heard about this i think we talked about it but i was like i want to just racial conscience admissions yeah race conscious admission so oh like affirmative action affirmative action yeah. okay 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 i was like what um at harvard and unc so both colleges use race amongst many other factors in their admissions decisions so obviously test scores grades race blah 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 that's just one little thing anyways a group of a group of students um called uh students for fair admissions they're saying that it's discriminatory and should be unlawful at Harvard specifically, they are saying that the affirmative action is specifically discriminatory against its Asian student body. Um, they're asking the court, the Supreme Court, by the way, to overturn a precedent 2003 decision called, uh, I might be pronouncing it wrong, but Greter against Ballinger. Mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, but anyways, if the court does overrule the precedent which most likely it will based on the justices that we have yep um as we know trump appointed three uh the it would make it would make it unlawful for universities to try to achieve any sort of any sort of like educational diversity which there have been many studies that show that students actually learn better and learn more and have like a well better more well-rounded education if there are students in the classroom that are diverse um but basically, yeah. So the educational diversity is the idea that students learn better and um, with lots of different viewpoints and backgrounds. Um, anyways, currently the system we have, it's not a quota system. So it's not like schools are like, oh, we have to have 5% black. People. Right. It's That's just like a, a layered factor, right? Exactly. It's just mm-hmm. like a very holistic process. And race is a part of that race and ethnicity. Um so also this has nothing to do with the fact, which I think it should be factored in, but it actually has nothing to do with the fact that uh, Black Americans built Harvard. Um, <laughs> so I think they're due some spots, but whatever, that's another aside. Um, many people argue that it would actually be better, as I just mentioned, um, to actually talk about America's past when talking about these laws. Um but really, the law is based off of the whole idea of the educational diversity thing. Um, this is a little fuzzy and a little gray. So people definitely think the precedent will be overturned. Unfortunately, we just don't know how dramatic it's going to change. Um, but yeah, college campuses could look very different in the next few years. Which is That's wild. Crazy. That makes me think of like what what the future of college even will be, I think, as people are frustrated with the cost of going to school um this is just another added layer more so seeking entrepreneurship in through different routes i think this is going to look very interesting but also just like bullshit because 
whatever. I won't even go down my rant that I want to go down. Um, yeah. I mean, I was talking to some people about it and they were like, well, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe more, you know, more, the most talented black students will now be going to HBCUs and won't mm. be um, going to Harvard, which is an argument. But my thing is a lot of students go to these PWIs because that's what they can afford. And like, a school like Howard, which has an endowment of God knows how much, probably the most in the country, you can, if you get into that school and you don't come from a certain income, you're going to school for free. Oh, you mean, I think you said Howard, mean Harvard. Harvard. Okay. Yeah. 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 I was like, Um, yes. Yeah. So like a lot of people I knew wanted to go to HBCUs, but like couldn't afford to do so. Right. Um, So I don't know. There are arguments of people saying this is a good thing, you know, more talented black kids will go to HBCUs. But again, I don't know. We'll see. But that's what's happening right now in the Supreme Court. And there's all other like fucking scary things like the country's literally going backwards. Something yeah. else that's happening is like the voting districts are being like rezoned and all these mm-hmm. things, which means like certain districts that technically have more black people, they're going to turn like instead of making those two districts, for example, they'll make them one, which we know our voting is not just like the popular vote. We have like the whole electoral college system. So yeah, it's really scary. Um, But that's, that's the end of days. End of days. But yeah, that's what I'm leaving on red. The HBCU conversation could be an interesting episode with like affirmative action, Mm -hmm. that shift. Hmm. Yeah. Another on red is the fact that I wasn't at BravoCon. That shit looks so fun and I'm definitely going next year. They are messy at that thing. It's so messy. And they also released the new cast of uh, Housewives of New York. I saw. I saw. Scout Scout in the City is going to be a housewife. I was like, whoa, not who I expected at all based off of the murmurings that we were seeing in like gossip blogs and stuff, but yeah. very interesting mix. Um, super, super quick note. I finally watched Beverly Hills Reunion 1. Oh, I didn't watch it yet. Oh. How did you okay. watch it if we don't have Peacock? <laughs> I got a new login. I got you. Oh, please. But you said that you. Well, now I'm here, so I don't have DVR. Oh, okay, okay. I got you. I got you. I'll text it to you. Um, You know, I keep that thing on me. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, in case you don't know, we were stealing Sade's roommate's login. Well, not stealing, borrowing. Yeah. And then one day I went to watch Housewives of Beverly Hills and I was like, wait, wait, wait. It was like Mr. Krabs meme because (laughs) I couldn't get into it. It was like, you have to pay. And I was like, what the fuck? So he got rid of it. So I was left high and dry. Yeah. yeah, he said the show that he was watching stopped, and so he, like it's he finished it, so he canceled. I was like, okay, clearly not like a recurring show watcher. Like, yeah, what I'm were like, you watching? Yeah, there's so much good stuff on Peacock. Actually. Yeah, who's who knows? But um, yeah, jumping into Hotline Bling. This is super brief, but um, if folks are interested i've been texting like all of my group chats about this episode of the daily was it the daily well while you look it up while you look it up 
yeah our hotline bling was also blinging about starbucks and delta you can get 500 yes. miles on delta if you link your starbucks and delta so go ahead and do that you're welcome delta girlies oh it was on up first which is another podcast that i listened to um i guess they like featured one from invisibilia which i think is another podcast sorry mm-hmm. that i don't have all my uh facts straight but it's called therapy ghostbusters and it was talking about um a group of cambodian immigrants who moved to the states and were kind of navigating like therapy to deal with ptsd from the genocide in cambodia and essentially talked about how a lot of their children were experiencing like high levels of abuse which in the black community we might just be like they're just being reprimanded and probably very similarly in um a lot of like multicultural communities ethnic quote-unquote communities um but also just like sleep paralysis a lot of just like trauma from seeing like awful awful things happen during the genocide and how it kind of was affecting generations it talked a lot about generational trauma And the whole time I was thinking about it and like the work that they're doing with some of these older communities to try to like undo that and repair their relationships. I was like, sounds like black people, like our experience, like people don't necessarily look, I know we as a community, like a lot of black people can speak to slavery as essentially like a genocide, a wiping out of, of our, our people. But I don't think a lot of people who might associate like, the Holocaust or like the genocide in Cambodia or genocide in Vietnam with slavery. And I'm like, a lot of these same themes that they're talking about are issues that were passed down in black communities for generations and generations. And a a lot of this work that they're undoing is because people put funding into being able to provide like therapy and help and um, kind of communal resources for these people. And I was just, wait, so they're getting free therapy. Yeah. Why the hell are black people not getting free therapy? Because it's like a, they were doing like a study. Um, oh, oh, I thought like the government was giving them therapy. Well, there was government funding. Listen to the episode. It's really, really interesting. Um, and well, something they that get we free therapy. Talk we about. need free therapy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, I guess this doctor found that a big like Cambodian community was on like anti-psychotic medication. And he was like, wow. they can't all be psychotic. Like what's going on here? And they were just being diagnosed with this and given this medication when really, in fact, they had like more post-traumatic stress, um, which looks very different. And the medication that you would be on, it was very different. Um, But they were just talking about how there is even like a lack of language around how to explain what they were going through um, and how they talk about it within their community of being able to understand what they're going through because there's a stigma of like therapies for crazy people mm-hmm. um so yeah a lot of information super super interesting and I sent it to my family because I was like we should talk about this as a group of people trying to undo generational trauma mm-hmm. um but yeah and that kind of leads me to our black girl doing shit my good sis, that's a black girl doing shit. Um, you're going to hear us speak to uh, our guest, but she's not a black woman. And we are always going to highlight black women on the show. Um, this isn't specific to any black woman in particular, but with the context of the episode, um, I thought it would be nice to highlight 
black mothers. Oh, yeah. Like, it made me think of that. Yeah. Like, y'all are raising black children, and that's no easy feat. Oof. So. I feel like I'm going to be an anxious wreck. But, yeah. Shout out to the black mamas. Y'all are doing the work. Shout out to our moms and aunties and and all all, all of y'all because don't know how y'all do it, but we appreciate you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, group chat, it's Sade, and I am so excited that the summertime is in full swing and there's nothing better than a refreshing drink to cool down. Gold Peak Real Brew Tea is here to unleash your sense of try, to ignite new passions and rekindle old ones. So try a Gold Peak and then try something else because this taste is worth the try. So try Gold Peak and tell them that Black Girls Texting sent you. Enjoy your summer, guys. All right, y'all. It's time for the group chat. Guys, I'm screaming. I'm fangirling. We have Dr. Orna Goralnik in the group chat. I'm going to tell you all about her real quickly, and then we're going to jump in. Dr. Orna Goralnik is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst practicing in New York City. Her um, She's on faculty, actually, at NYU Postdoctoral Institute for Psychoanalysis and at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies in New York City, where she teaches courses on the transgenerational transmission of trauma, the sociopolitics slash ideology and psychoanalysis and on disassociation. Lots of big words. Currently, Dr. Guralnik lectures and publishes on the topics of couples treatment and culture. And she is on the editorial board of Psychoanalytical Dialogues and of Studies in Gender and Sexuality. She's the co-founder of the Center for the Study of Disassociation and Depersonalization at Mount Sinai. And prior to being a psychoanalyst, she was one of the principals of Lucid Consulting and Work Lab Consulting Research. And she's a graduate of NYU. Shout out to the NYU folks who might be listening, postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis. Some of you may know her from Showtime's documentary series, Couples Therapy, but man, the accolades, so many big words. So happy to have <laughs> you. Thank you for jumping into the group chat. Thank you. Thank you, Sade. <laughs> I'm delighted so, to be here. We, I, I'm like, I can't get over this. I can't even tell you. I don't know why my excitement, uh, you can just see I'm beaming. So I'm going <laughs> to slow down and regroup us um, and formally welcome you to the group chat. This is where we really dig into questions we unpack. Um, it's really going to be reflective of how we speak because we kind of jump all over the place when we're talking to one another via text. Um, So ride the wave with us. Um, It's truly a range. And we always love to give our listeners a little more background on our guests. So I would love to know um, more about you and how you got into this field of work. Um, Well, I actually oddly started um, when I was in college, I studied film um, and thought I'd be a filmmaker but um, it turned out that I uh, made all sorts of like odd experimental films that no one but me and my besties would want to watch. <laughs> um, so that happened a long time ago. Um, but what drew me to the work, I mean, many things drew me to the work, but um, 
it was partially reading all sorts of psychoanalytic texts of the time. Um, I read Freud and I read Winnicott, but I also read R.D. Lang and all sorts of kind of anti-psychiatry kind of writers and felt like I'm, I suddenly have like a new language to understand what's going on in the world. Like I had many, many aha moments just reading these kind of texts like, oh, that's what's been going on. That's why I felt confused all these years or hmm. just gave me kind of a language to figure out what's going on. Um, and when I realized that I'm not destined to be a filmmaker, I, <laughs> um, psychoanalysis is interesting and started pursuing that, um, and then moved to the States. I mean, at the time I was living in Israel, um, so moved to the States and got a graduate degree in it and did a bunch of other things, but eventually got into psychoanalytic training and really found my intellectual and personal home in the world of psychoanalysis. Um, something about the kind of the, the mixture of like both the kind of academic rigor, but also uh, underlying it is a very kind of creative search for meaning that is never ending. And mm -hmm. so there i'm here <laughs> <laughs> very unexpected pathway yeah. to your work but i think very interesting as well to your point around like the creative underlyings um we've had a few therapists on the show in the past and i often ask this question so listeners if you feel like i'm a broken record <laughs> oh well um but i'm curious because i love to hear different perspectives do you think everyone should be in therapy or some type of space where they can unpack heal um what are your thoughts on that um interesting question um i think as humans we all need a certain kind of space in which we have the option both to feel intelligible to other people, to someone else, and to mm. be in dialogue with someone else about our inner workings. Um, I don't think it has to be therapy. I think mm -hmm. there are many ways that people do that for each other. I think some people go to church for it. Mm -hmm. Some people... Um, engage in other kinds of group activities where the emphasis is on creating a space to understand each other, um, get another perspective, a, a space of reflection. I mean, some people meditate and, and, and mm -hmm. their guide that way. I mean, you know, nowadays people do all sorts of like, you know, ayahuasca journeys. Mm. There are many ways to create these kind of spaces, but it's not only therapy. I mean, therapy, and I'm particularly interested in psychoanalytic work, is one particular way that I, I think is wonderful, but it's not the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. Clem, that was not a cue for you to go try ayahuasca. <laughs> I just want to try it. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. So at the National Institute for Psychotherapists in New York, you teach a course on the psychopolitics ideology and psychoanalysis. And I think very stereotypically in the Black community, therapy has been looked at as a quote-unquote white thing, or it's seen as something for people who have money access. It's seen almost as a luxury. 
In your studies, have you had conversations about this? Are there more conversations about other non-white people seeking therapy and like what that needs to mean to the study? Because it is very rooted in white male ideology. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, That is a huge question. Super important. (laughs) No big deal. Just a little casual. (laughs) In a way, it's been kind of like the the thing I and my friends, my colleagues, like a particular group, it's the thing we've been preoccupied with the entirety of our academic career. Um, I think, I mean, there are many ways to answer this um, and, and cut me off if I'm like going on and on. But um, I think, first of all, there is the very basic and important issue, which is that psychoanalysis and therapy um has been a, a, um, a luxurious activity, a luxury mm-hmm. where only people who can pay for it can do, mm-hmm. um, which immediately kind of replicates certain like class distinctions. I mean, in this country, class slash race distinctions, immigration. I mean, there are many things that go with it. So for many years, therapy and psychoanalysis have been for the well-off and have separated out the classes that way and the races that way. And in that sense, it has been for the rich and comfortable whites. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is the history of this profession. Um, And from that perspective, you know, for black folks or for people of color to be suspicious of, let's say, psychoanalysis, I agree. I mean, the history mm-hmm. of the field is to be um, suspected in in being kind of blind to how it's nested in privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, that is changing. It's changing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, thank goodness it's changing. There have been many reasons why mm-hmm. it's changing. It's been changing, first of all, because of like many feminist waves that have critiqued the field for that, for it being kind of so aligned with like um, patriarchal um, white privileged ideology. I mean, there's been a lot of critique from the feminist side, then from the queer populations, there's been a critique. And finally, from, you know, the the post-colonial movements, like black movements, Black Lives Matter, like all the um, anti-racist movements that have finally brought like a new wave of understanding where the biases sit. Mm -hmm. And I'll speak for psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis has really been taking that on in a a very important way. Um, So things are changing. Now, there are other more complicated things um, that have to do with that, that trouble this field, which is that, you know, when you when you train as a therapist, when you train as an analyst, you're mostly trained to think of people's suffering and people's trouble as their private issue. Mm. So there's a way to privatize the problem. They either had their own personal uh, family history that kind of messed them up, very personal kind of trauma, their particular kind of mother or father, Mm. or specific things that happen within the family and even within the individual with um, 
very little attention to how these this kind of trouble sits within um the social system ways that like poverty class um racial tensions intergenerational histories immigration and its relationship to the dominant narrative all of these things play out in people's individual symptoms and um when you're trained to mostly think about the inner workings of a person you don't pay that much attention to those very important factors that affect mental health yep um now, on one hand, it's important to know how to focus on these things as a therapist, because when when each one of us goes to their therapist to talk, they're not necessarily going to be, you know, political activists. They want to talk about their own personal <laughs> pains and issues, like, you know, your own relationship with your mom or with your boyfriend or yeah, like, you know, Marxist class <laughs> dynamics, but those yeah. matter. So it, it puts it puts the field in a complicated position. Um, and again, things are changing. I mean, people like myself and my colleagues are, are working on changing the theory and changing the way of working with people to, to be more inclusive of those issues and to understand how they impact the individual. Um, same thing happens with teachers, like, you know, when teachers in public schools where they're, they're you know, they're supposed to like somehow teach their individual kids how to do this, how to read, how to do that. But the kids come to them hungry in a state mm -hmm. of, there's no home to go to. There's nowhere to do homework. There's no internet. There are other issues that affect a kid's ability to learn. Mm -hmm. There, I mean, every individual issue is nested within a larger social context and we got to figure out how to work with that. And things are changing. Luckily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that you talked about like the intergenerational stuff. I actually was having like a conversation with my older sister um, and we're both the child, like children of an immigrant um, and her niece or my niece, her daughter is in this very elite private school. And we were having conversations about her experience and, you know, how, things that our mom did she sees in herself and she's trying to break the break the cycle but it's mm -hmm. kind of like almost inevitable can you talk about like that trauma that gets passed down generation to generation and and is it inevitable like is that just mm -hmm. something that is just going to happen you know yeah another huge question <laughs> <laughs> um you know how would I answer that without like writing a book? Um, <laughs> you know, the, the things that um, make us move, the things that govern the choices we make, the good choices, the pain we suffer, all this unconscious stuff that is, in the background kind of influencing what happens to us and how we experience our life is multi-layered, right? There are the things that we're kind of born with, certain kind of traits. There are the things that happen to us when we're really little. There are the things that happen to us later in life. There's our relationship with every person that matters to us 
over growing up. And then there are the things that happen before we were even born that influence our caretakers, that influence the community mm-hmm. we grow into. And they don't necessarily come to us in the form of like a story written to us that that tells us, oh, this is what happens to your mom. This is what happened to your mom between her and her, her mother because of, let's say, having to flee a certain situation in one mm-hmm. country, move to another country and leave everything behind or because of a world war nobody gives you a handbook of what happened to your grandparents, but it comes into how this particular mother will interact with her baby and, and the kind of messages, the implicit messages that are passed on between the generations. And sometimes when the messages are implicit and not handed over in the form of like a, an actual written narrative, they're much more powerful because you can't even think about them. They're just feel them. Yeah. You know, like you know, you know, among us Jews, and the, the, there's like the um, the the jokes about like Holocaust hoarding of food. Hmm. Nobody tells you that your grandparent like went you know five years without even eating, but there's like an enormous amount of anxiety around food, and people. Mm-hmm. Are, uh-huh. There's like you just get used to that, but you have no idea where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Or I had a patient who. Um, this is someone that uh, I've written about and it's like, it's okay to talk about her. Um, she, she's okay. Me sharing this information, but she has described how she comes from generations in which mothers were always abandoned by the fathers. So mothers were always single mothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because of like all sorts of social structures. This is like, you know, Black families from generations um, past where there was no way for an an intact nuclear family to stay together. So it was generations of like mothers just taking care of the kids. And she was about to get married. And rather than feel elated, she just felt this like uncontrollable sense of doom. Hmm. Something bad will definitely happen. Because it happened to all the mothers before her, all the married Mm -hmm. women before her. So these things get passed on. Yeah. Is it social or like, or like biological? Like, is it just in Mm -hmm. our DNA? Well, there, there's, there's a lot of studies now that like studies of like epigenetics, the way kind of trauma and events now can actually make their way into our DNA and, and change things like turn on certain kind of genes that are receptive to certain kind of anxieties and turn off other genes. So it's probably to some degree in our DNA, but I think it's also just in the ways of being that are passed on to kids. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be at the level of the DNA. It's like just ways of behaving. Uh, what, what, we're taught to be afraid of what we're taught to expect. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that's also why these studies being able to understand cultural nuance is so important. Like when people hear about someone getting spanked or like beaten, like as a form of um, discipline, some cultures might be like, that's crazy. But it's like black, people had to do that because it's like you can't just go 
running outside doing whatever like you might get killed by the police and that (laughs) is something that like we have to implement in our children that other cultures don't have to think about and then that's a whole other thing that we then have to unlearn and it's like how how do you teach someone to incorporate that into their therapy and their sessions like it's very very layered and complicated I imagine yeah I actually remember you know when I was in uh, grad school I I worked in this um, trauma study and I remember at the beginning I worked at the VA and um, we had to do these trauma interviews and I would ask people have you ever been abused as a kid and they'd say absolutely not never I had a great childhood and then I'd go through a series of of questions like did you ever were you ever forced kneel on rice did someone ever hit you with a cord blah 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 all of these things and they'd say yeah they did for discipline and i'd be like but they weren't abused abused." oh yeah lots to undo there (laughs) and lots for us at the time for us as interviewers and as therapists to understand that these words are completely nested within a particular culture of expectations and totally mm-hmm. right because is a spanking abuse right that's yeah an opinion <laughs> completely you know? but i also think it goes back to like this concept of luxury like my mom whoo she was a little unhinged but <laughs> she had her first kid at 17 years old <laughs> she didn't she didn't know how to like manage that or have the time to do that and her father didn't necessarily know how to deal with her and discipline her because he's coming from a family that grew up in like Alabama South so like it's very confusing well, and the stakes are higher like you mentioned exactly like, yeah exactly it's totally different whereas me now like I don't have kids yet but like I don't know, maybe I'll just be like, I wasn't very patient, but I don't think that my concerns are going to be like, do, can I put food on the table today? Or do I, am I concerned that like my child might be lynched? Like, no, as much, a little bit, but you know, not as much. So it's so different as you go through generation and generation. Yeah. And in cultures, I mean, if you were raising your kids in Sudan, like 20 years ago, I mean, basically, you'd need them to be you you don't want them like paying attention to their feelings. You want them like getting correct someone. Correct. Yep. Yeah. On on what your community needs from you. Yeah. That's wild. Glenn, you were about to say something. I forgot what it was now. It came and went. It came and went. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, I could talk to you forever about about these things, because I think collectively our generation is doing a lot of work to for me it's less undoing it's more so forgiving like I've had a lot of conversations with my mother like I didn't love that in my (laughs) upbringing but I understand why you did it I forgive you let's move forward and now how can I try not to repeat patterns just because Mm -hmm. they're they're learned patterns and learn new patterns Mm -hmm. and even like accepting I don't know if that's the right word but like sometimes you express something to an older person in your family Mm -hmm. and what are you talking about that that's not how it happened and it's just like I've seen a lot of that you but 
that's how it happened. But maybe we just have to accept this. And, completely. And- <laughs> completely. My father's literally looked me in the face and was like, you weren't really hit that much as a kid. And I'm like, you literally would run around the house and tell my mom, don't hit her in the face. I'm like, that's, that <laughs> happened. And he, and my sisters are like, that happened. But to them, I think they're just like, well, you weren't, you know, getting beat in the backyard with the switch. So <laughs> to them, it's like, it never happened. And I'm like, this is crazy, but sure. Acceptance. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Memory is a very complicated thing. Yes. Oh, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um. Well, switching gears a little bit, unless ladies, you have anything else. I want to go just into made it. just, just really quickly. When you said memories are a complicated thing, there are so many things I don't remember. And I, and I've spoken to my sister and I'm like, I think it's like a trauma response. Like mm-hmm. my entire high school, I went to a private boarding school, very white. I was one of four black people. Um, And I don't remember that much of high school. Hmm. And she was like, she was asking me, she was like, how was your freshman year? Like when you first got there? And I was Mm. like, it was good. And she was like, it was good. You called home every day crying. I was like, I don't remember that. Wow. (laughs) But it's like your memory like protects you, I guess, because I have no recollection of it being that bad. I just don't really remember it. But that that makes me think. That's upsetting, but um, that makes me think that um, part there's a difference between this kind of implicit memory where, let's say, trauma or bad experiences or all sorts of experience, physical experience, get kind of stored, and then there's the register of more what we call kind of declarative or narrative memory, which is a memory that you can tell your sister what happened, mm. and you know, when you're in an environment, I'm just imagining, let's say you're one of the few people of color in a particularly white environment, most of what you're experiencing maybe was not narrated because who would you narrate it to? Mm, that's such a good point. Wow. So you don't even have the language for it, really, it for the memory. It was live in you in the form of like a, your story. Mm-hmm. It's probably in there somewhere on the level of the body, but not on the level of like a narrative yet. Yeah. That's a great point. I'll be unpacking this some more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and get more into your work with couples, which I know a lot of this is also rooted in. um, But I'd love to know more about some of your work with couples. Um, Did you initially start working with couples or is that something that came later in your career? Um, it came later. I worked with groups a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. all of my, um, training and later, um, and through working with groups, I got into systems thinking, thinking about like the system that is operating between individuals, which is partially, um, informed by how much like ideology and politics, politics have always interested me. Um, so groups are a place where it's the distinction between an individual and the community is less important. You're more working kind of with the group as a whole and with the ideology of the group or the group think. Um, and then later I got more interested in couples almost as an extension of my group work. Mm. Um, for many reasons, both because, again, couples have formed between them kind of a mini political system. Mm-hmm. 
of mm. how they negotiate difference and how they negotiate power and how, yeah, how they negotiate conflict. So that was interesting to me. Um, but also working with individuals, working with my analytic cases, most of what people talk about are their uh-huh. close relationships. That's the thing of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, talk about mm-hmm. love and work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it became a place where I saw more of what's going on and, and could intervene on the level of action rather than on the level of thinking about it. Mm. Um, and nowadays, I mean, I, I kind of split my time between individuals and couples, but I really love working with couples. It's it's mm-hmm. endlessly interesting. It's It's where both individual issues, individual histories, and sociopolitical ideological issues get worked out um there's a lot of action uh, <laughs> it's it's great work I, I love working with couples it's hard yeah yes. watching you on the show it's like watching you solve a puzzle when you're like okay wait so he has this and she has that now how can and I'm just like this is so fascinating <laughs> but how I'm- do you manage working with couples when also everyone brings their own personal stuff to the table. And what if one person has something that's deeply personal to them that comes up in the session? Um, Do you ask the other partner to leave? Like, how does that work? I almost never ask one of the partners to leave because in the background, I'm always thinking of the couple as a unit. Mm -hmm. So I don't want part of the unit to leave. I might focus in particular on one person with the idea that the other person by being a witness is changing while this person is working on something Um, or else I just refer them to do individual work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in terms of how to work on the, the different issues that each person is bringing, you know, there are all these registers that show up when you're working as a couples therapist. There's like all the individual stuff. There's the conflicts in between people. There's the history that that particular couple generated. And then there's each of their relationship to me and the sibling rivalry that gets <laughs> in the room. Um, and that's part of the fun part of this work, which is like the, what do you bet on? What do you feel like is going to give you the most leverage to to affect change fastest? Because mm-hmm. it's not like in psychoanalysis where I'm sitting with people for years on end. It's quick work. Um, mm-hmm. So I have to kind of make a bet on what register of the system I'm going for. And sometimes it works. And sometimes I have to like back off and say, all right, forget that. That didn't really work. I got to try something completely different. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Do you see like in, in terms of like heterosexual couples, do you see a difference in how men and women receive uh, your guidance? No, no, not really. I mean, there are superficial differences, but they're really just, um the veneer i mean i i i think of gender generally as kind of a just a veneer i'm i'm talking mm-hmm. to what's under gender humanity mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. gender gender is like color it's like it's you know it's like a veneer it's it's 
we're people under that whole thing that gets wrapped around us. And I'm trying to speak to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thinking about that, though, there obviously are additional layers as we're starting to think about gendering couples or racing couples. I remember, I want to say on season three, there was a black couple and one of the, I think she was like a dancer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And um, he spoke a lot about like of his traumas as a black man, um, which is something that influences their relationship and them as a couple. How do you navigate that? They were amazing. You know, they, when they came into my office, the first session, I, I think it was the first thing Dale said. He sat down and he said, I mean, not exactly in these words, but more or less, he said, you know, as black people, we come into relationships with trauma. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, okay, do we need to say anything else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> Yes. Okay. You've done all the work. I can do a little bit more with you. Um, How do I work with it? Um, It's sort of what I was saying earlier. There's a way in which I focus on the specific individual things that a couple comes to work on difficulties in communication, power issues, um, difficulty flexing and compromising, uh, misunderstandings, fears of saying things, the usual things a couple couples deal with. But I'm also very aware of the uh, background pressure that big issues like class, race, gender, politics, mm-hmm. these like huge issues that, that they exert this kind of background pressure on the specific dynamics that a couple is struggling with. And at a certain point in the treatment, usually it becomes obvious that we need to talk about that. And in a way, for all of us to understand where that lives within the couple. So the couple can be a little bit freer to understand that some of the issues that they're suffering with, with each other are not between them, but they're bigger issues in society and that they need to, they don't need to fight it between them. Um, I'll give you an example, not an example actually from class, not from race, but I had a couple, and again, this is a couple that, has given permission to uh, share their information. Um, they had they had this repeat fight between them about how he eats, that he eats and makes these slurping sounds when he eats, which would drive her completely crazy. Like, why are you eating like an animal? And for years, she would like harass him, and he would fix his behavior for a little bit of time and then go right back to like slurping and burping and making all these like passionate sounds about eating. (laughs) And they could not understand why they're stuck in this thing forever and ever and ever. And it seemed like it's just a problem between them. She can't influence him. He seems resistant. And then it turned out that really what this was about was she came from kind of middle class and he came from working class 
And he was like, I'm not going to change for you. I, I am not going to give up my class identity in response to you, privileged middle-class lady. I'm not, hmm. doing, I don't believe in that. And once they figured that out between them, the whole tension around this eating thing just dissolved because they understood what this was about. And it wasn't something between them. It was something that has to do with like a very long history of class differences and resentments and, and who gets to influence who. And it's not between them. It's, it's in society. Wow. That's they- such an aha moment. Like yeah. that you just, yeah, go ahead, Chelsea. No, I was just wondering, did they come to you specifically for that issue or were there other issues? There were other issues. Okay. I was just, I was wondering in my head, like, I was like, do people come for like, like really what I perceive and maybe it's perceived incorrectly as like smaller things or like, are there like big monumental issues in their relationship? They had bigger issues, but you know, even the biggest issues between people in day-to-day life, they get translated into mm-hmm. where did you put your shoes or did you put yes. the, 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 how did you load the dishwasher? But <laughs> when you start unpacking it, it's like, whoa, it's big. Like who gets to say what? Right? Yeah. That's not about the dishwasher. That's about like class and privilege and trauma and other things. Do you think it's important to do individual work outside of couples work like for me my boyfriend's not in therapy even though I think that would be nice for him but who am I to say um but he's not in therapy so obviously I talk about him in therapy all the time and I unpack patterns that are causing us to get into things that we get into and I'm unpacking things about myself that I think will aid the relationship, but sometimes I'm like, okay, well, that's one person doing one thing. How do you, like, what if someone's like, I don't want to go? Like, how, how, how can you make that work? Yeah, that's, you can imagine that's not an unusual dilemma. Right, right. Um, I think a couple of things. I mean, in a certain way, it would be ideal if during certain times, both people in the couple can do some individual work and get more familiar with their own dynamics so they can be more fluent and fluid in self-reflection. But it's not always possible. Sometimes people either don't have the means, don't like the length Uh of therapy, don't like that kind of thinking. That's not their access, their access point to themselves. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, sometimes it's useful for just one person to be in therapy and, and you might have to do a lot of that work for the two of you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's okay. Then your boyfriend will do another kind of work for the two of you. Not mm-hmm. that. Um, and, you know, I think systemically, and if one person in the system can figure out how to change things, the other person changes because the system yeah. My therapist said it's like a dance. She's mm-hmm. like, when you like take the lead and you try to shift things, you'll be, you know, surprised how the other partner is like, okay, cool. And I was like, hmm, I like this little dance analogy. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very I, interesting. I also wonder though, like if even when you're working on yourself, how 
sometimes you can remember and use those tools. And then sometimes it's like, you never worked on yourself and you don't have the tools. So like with my sister and I, we barely fight. We used to fight all the time. And now we just know how to talk to each other and like know how to deescalate. Like we don't Mm -hmm. fight. Um, We really communicate well with each other, but I'll have other very important relationships in my life. And it's just like, (laughs) like I can't do this I can't do it how I can do it with her right so like I wonder why that is like I'm able like you might be able to self-reflect with some people and then with other people it's not that easy to use the tools that you've gained yeah that I mean I would use the language of like multiple self-states meaning Mm. we can be in a in a very in our best self under certain conditions and then other conditions it's like it's almost like a um, almost like a post-traumatic memory that gets kind of pinged or gets provoked in certain situations and a whole other set of memories feelings expectations gets triggered in you and then you're uh-huh. a very different place in yourself that you haven't yet worked on or haven't figured out a way to get access to and only you only access under particular conditions that trigger that self-state. Does that That, do? Yeah, that makes sense. Even like with different friends, like certain friends, like you know how to handle them in like a tough situation and certain friends. And it probably has to do with like the history of that friendship or Mm -hmm. like experiences you've had with that person or so many things but yeah that totally makes sense yeah I guess yeah certain people like they kind of hypnotize you into a certain state of mind (laughs) that makes me think about just how we are kind of working on ourselves Uh, I have a we I feel like we talked about this a couple of times. I personally feel like morals are completely made up. I'm like, what is a moral? Like the Bible says this, the Quran <laughs> says that, blah, 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 blah. You shouldn't kill people. But like for years, people killed people who looked different than them and they justified it by othering them, whatever. It right. It right. <laughs> we have internal right. moral compasses. <laughs> but built upon what like we all build that off of certain things like I took a class on the sociological understanding of genocide and the first step in genocide is being able to just distinguish an othering of another person like they're different than me their belief they're beneath me therefore their human Mm. life is not valued and if you intrinsically build that into someone then they can truly believe that that is true and not wrong right yeah Right. So whatever. I'm not trying to get into the concept of genocide. I'm trying to go back to the the morals thing. And I always find that a lot of the work that I'm doing is to align with what society says is right and how I should behave. Hmm. What does that mean, Shade? You can't like, tell what that means. I'm like, yeah, what are you trying to be out here doing? <laughs> Not saying like I want to go on a murder. You want to kill? I'm I'm saying like society says like you speak to people you know politely and you're not short and you're very understanding and you you know you and sometimes I'm like what oh why you know so I'm constantly trying to you don't undo like it done to you behaviors not really I could give a shit if you're short you're short yeah. like you, we all have our moments right but 
what I'm trying to get to, Dr. Borna, sorry, this is a long way of getting here. <laughs> We've obviously is, had these conversations. It's <laughs> like, how much of it is undoing, unlearning, teaching yourself new behaviors? And how much of it is just, this is me. Sometimes I'm an asshole. Um, first of all, I love these thought experiments these questions (laughs) you're like you're laughing but you're basically asking the big questions these are the big questions um also it made me think of the um, did you see the film uh sorry to bother you yes oh no okay i gotta that movie's insane (laughs) you saw it Mm -hmm. sorry that's the one that's the one that it takes place in Oakland, right? And then at the end, there's that really no. strange twist. No, that's not sorry to bother you. Sorry. Oh, sorry to bother you with the horses. Uh, yeah, with the horses. Riley. Boots Riley at the end with the horses. Yes, 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 yes. It's it's all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, must see one of the best films, seriously, in the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, I. I'm a humanist, and I do believe that our nature is good, that our nature is ethical, that our nature is do no harm and live in harmony with others. Mm-hmm. Um, I also believe that there are many ways that that can be perverted because of all sorts of political structures that go awry. Um and I do believe, you know, I've worked, for example, I, I wrote an essay years ago about my work with someone who was the granddaughter of uh, Nazi Germans, of active Nazi Germans. And I believe that people who live unethically and immorally, um, even if it's if it goes, even if it's like in line with the rest of society, are ultimately deeply wounded, damaged inside from living unethical lives. And it might go on for a couple of generations, but it there's no way to get away with that. You can't get away with that. Um, you know, I'm half Israeli, you know, there's no way to get away, for example, with an occupation. It's, it's going to last a few generations, but you can't get away with that. It's just, there's no way that people can ultimately be okay and live at peace with themselves living unethically. You can get away with it for a little while, maybe a couple of generations, but there's people cannot really live that way. And history corrects itself. Um, hopefully we'll get a chance before, you know, we destroy this earth. Um, I do believe in morals and ethics, and I think mm-hmm. um, perversions get corrected over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look at white guilt. Mm-hmm. Right. We can talk about where it comes from, but there are people, I think, that feel it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's also like tough in a society. Like, if you're someone who's like, okay, I want to have integrity. I want to like do the right thing, but you're living in this world where it's kind of like doggy dog world. Like you Mm got to compete, you got to earn money, you got to 
climb up the corporate ladder. Like, like I, I personally think anyone who's a billionaire has done something fucked up. Absolutely. Has to. There's no way that they got a billion dollars by being a good person. Um, so it's just like it is complicated because, yeah, we we live in the world we live in. I just read the statement that every billionaire is manifests um, bad policy. Bad totally. Policy. Yeah. Totally. How could you? Ugh. That that question though kind of leads me to thinking about couples and like seemingly unrectifiable issues because I I we talked a lot about this just in navigating relationships on past episodes like bending versus breaking mm-hmm. um where you know the gentleman was like I'm going to slurp get over it <laughs> you know like yeah is there ever a clear indicator like okay this couple is not going to work. I feel like yesterday on yeah, online there was there a were ton like of divorce, twenty different divorce announcements. Oh my god! And I so want to add to that that like in the comments. So yeah, there's a bunch of celebrity divorces yesterday. This one couple who I actually really love watching from afar, Miguel and mm-hmm. Nazanin, mm-hmm. they had announced a divorce recently, and then they got back together. And then when they got back together, everybody was like, amazing. I'm so glad they're back. And then in the so com- strange. It's a little bit weird. And then in the comments <laughs> yesterday, pe- some people are like, oh, this is so terrible. I hope that they can work it out, push through. And I'm sort of like, mm. they gave it another shot. It doesn't work <laughs> for them. They did f- however many years, maybe 10 years together is a beautiful chapter. It's not like this doesn't hurt them. It's probably very painful for them to go through, but they're better work. off apart. And maybe they have another love. So just adding that context to it. When is it time to break? And how do you view people breaking up apart? You know, I'm I'm not, I mean, if I had to say something very generic, I'm not so much, and I've said that to couples, I'm not so much in the business of like, should people break up or stay together? Or how do uh-huh. they exactly the structure of their relationship? I feel like my real job is how do you relate to each other with dignity, honestly, and and with respect? And and how exactly you want to structure your relationship. If, if you want to be a romantic couple, you want to co-parent, you want to be friends, or you want to like just turn your backs on each other. That's sort of, I'm not so so busy with that. I'm busy with whether people are capable of being there fully being present with their truth and being able to hear each other out and whatever they decide to do with that great um i i respect people with all their decisions and how they want to structure their lives um but in terms of when do i see signs that it's really not a good idea for people to stay together when i feel that way which is rare um it's first of all when i see people who cannot get over a certain kind of addiction to abuse Mm. and sometimes it's really an addiction um the people who cannot move from the rhetoric of blame to i guess what bell hooks would call like the ethics of love Mm. if people just get repeatedly repeatedly like a repetition compulsion they just is to extract some flesh from the other person and I can't convince them to get off that don't stay together I mean no 
if it's if it's if all the energy is around abuse or blame and not around tenderness and compassion what's i don't i don't condone that that's not okay and some people really do get stuck there is there like is there like a fair time period for that though right like if someone say cheats on you do you have a moment to blame 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 take pieces of flesh <laughs> before <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean Yes, I think sometimes it takes people a little while to, to to sort of, I think people might need time to really understand, be heard, feel there's some way to contain very difficult feelings they might have, hurt, betrayal. But if it goes on, if they don't want anything else other than, I mean, if, if someone is cheated on and all they want is revenge, they don't see in their horizon moving beyond that to some place of like mutual understanding. What's the point? It, mm-hmm. It's sadomasochistic dynamic that. Yes. No point. Oh, that reminds me of one of the couples. I want to say in season three, they were together for like 19 years and like, he was like, he cheated. She cheated. I was like, this is giving a lot of, complicated layers and like almost as though it really makes me think at the core of it there's this like vulnerability that everyone is very afraid of untapping but also to your point like if you're constantly just going to say I have to get back at you you have to get back at me you have to do that back and forth and you lose the compassion and the love it it seems like a mute point. I can't remember how that ended. Chelsea, you have to, I've been telling the girls, they gotta get, they gotta get on season three. They gotta get on season three. I need to watch. I need to watch. (laughs) And I know we're like tight on time. I know that. Can I just ask this question? How would you advise someone in like the initial steps of forgiving another person? Mm. Mm. Beautiful question. Um, it's a complicated one Um, I think first of all people the way I understand it is that forgiveness is something that a person a lot of the work is within oneself not with the other person meaning you let's say you feel like something, someone has betrayed you or hurt you in a way that um, has wronged you. So some of the work is with the other person to understand what was going on there. Do they take responsibility? But some, a lot of the work is internal is on, are you ready to move from a place of anger and a certain kind of, um, entitlement to your resentment and are you ready to search within yourself for a place of forgiveness where you can kind of see the bigger picture let go of resentment Mm -hmm. and understand kind of the humanity of the other person but it's a very deep internal work I mean some people think a lot of it is between people I think a lot of it is is internal 
So I don't know. Did that answer you, Chelsea? Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm a, my I think we you know everyone has flaws and one of mine is definitely a grudge holder. Mm. And I don't want to be that way, but I don't really forget when people do things to me. Yeah, there's a way, <laughs> so I'm working a on that way skill to set. not forget but not hold a grudge. Mm. Mm -hmm. In the words of a LC from Laguna Beach, I will forgive, but yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget. forget. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I, I like what you said about the internal stuff because I real I had a little situation and someone had cheated on me and I was very upset about it. And then when I really unpacked it, I realized I was jealous of the relationship they had with the person that they cheated on me with because those patterns weren't present in our relationship. Yeah. And so it was not, it had nothing to do with them cheating really. I mean, yes, I felt like the betrayal, but my true anger lied in how could you show up for this person in this way and not show up for me in this way? And I realized I had never even expressed that I wanted to be showed up for that way. Yeah, I mean, that's not even jealousy. I don't think, I think it's what you, the latter that you said. Yeah. It, like showcase what you, what was missing. And there's some anger. Totally, totally. But, but I realized that the, the, yeah. the. It wasn't the infidelity point, though. Itself. Right. Was that, I was like, not me jealous of the girl who cheated on what in the hell is this oh you know goodness. like but it's really wild when you start to like the humanity of it yes like how could you do this to me okay let me sit and break down how you could do this to me and like yeah. why you did it you know yeah Ugh, i could talk to you forever i know i was like gonna that. say you have to come like, back. We, we, yeah we ha we'll have to do a part two yeah. um that's deep work though yeah <laughs> yeah i'm like are yeah. you taking new clients on <laughs> <laughs> um before you go i'd love to know if there's anything else you want to share um anything you want people to be on the lookout for i know you're not like a big instagram person but i don't know if there's a new season of the show coming out or anything that you want to we tell the people to look into uh yeah we are deep in the throes of editing the next season which awesome. uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be very interesting because um, I worked <laughs> with couples and it was really a, a wonderful season, like really interesting work. I'd be very curious to know what you'll think of it. Um, so that I think should come out in the winter, I'm hoping. Um, I don't actually know when it's coming out. Um yeah, but no. Other than that, thank you for having me. Was, thank, thank you for coming. coming. Thank you for coming. This is beautiful. Yeah, Great. we'll have to we'll have to do a part two uh, because when the we new talk season to you comes endlessly. Out. Yes, yes, Let's yes. Do that. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank you for stepping into the group chat, and I know our listeners are really going to appreciate this. Thank you so much. What would you do? And now for the what would you do? So this week, the what would you do came from a conversation that I was having with a friend who broke up with someone. I think now the breakup has been like a few months and the person is like not letting it go. So, I mean, I've definitely had this experience a few years, but um, the person is not letting it go. So like, 
I guess that's the what would you do? What would you do if you break up with someone and they won't let you do a clean break? Like they're still contacting you. They're still reaching out to you. They're still trying to reach out to people in your circle. They might pop up at places that you are. Like, what would you do? If you see Shade's face right now. <laughs> in terms of the reaching out, I'd say block them. But if they're showing up to places like intentionally. Are there are there mutual friends in the in the group or like they kind of latched on to this person's friends? I think at this point they do have some friend overlap. Because maybe one of your friends could be like, listen, I'm just naming this person Tremaine. I don't know why. <laughs> listen, Tremaine, like you got to stop this. Like this is not okay. This is not healthy. This is like really disrespectful. Like, I can't maintain a relationship with you if you're doing these things because they probably won't listen to you at this point. I don't want to go as far as being like restraining order unless it gets to that point and this right. person is like really being out of control. Um, but yeah, I'd say block them and like try to see if your community can support you and mm. like getting through to them that this is like not appropriate behavior. Like if you keep doing this, like you won't be invited to things right yeah we have to like sever our relationship you also have to accept because you do have overlapping friend groups that yeah if it's like a mutual friend's birthday party they might be there right if it's like something that they would not really be at and they're just ig stalking and popping up where you are or like frequenting places they know you go with the intention of seeing you it's giving restraining order. It's giving stalker. It's giving um, stalker. Yeah, I think maybe you call this person and say, hey, no hard feelings, but I would like a clean break. And if I wasn't already clear about that, this is me being clear about it. Um, I do not wish to continue speaking to you or to see you. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm telling you my needs and my boundaries. Please respect them. Otherwise, I might have to call the police. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to have to call the police. Yeah. Especially, yeah. I don't want to have to call the police on like talk. a black man. Like, that's terrible. Yeah. But and I don't want to talk to the police, period. Right. Fact. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's hard. But, Even though I have definitely joked with my boyfriend that if he ever left me, that I would ruin his new partner's life. But that is a joke. That is in jest. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> okay well um listeners what say you maybe write us in the comments yeah let us know um thoughts and prayers as always to folks going through that type of bullshit because that's can't be fun yeah that sucks um anyways thank you again for listening to another episode of black girls texting please continue to rate comment share subscribe it's super helpful um we also have merch so share that um we are black girls texting on all platforms so patreon instagram youtube um i think tiktok yep. uh and on twitter we're black girls text one we owe you guys some social posts because no one posted that clip of Glenn asking for the Renaissance 
images. I don't think so. It's coming. There's a lot going on with that. More to come. Oh, it's coming. Yeah, lots of lots of moving parts, but but yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening, <laughs> as always, we appreciate you very much. Um, and have a great rest of your week. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to Black Girls Texting. Make sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Oh, and don't forget to text every group chat you're in and tell them to check us out. Follow your girls at Black Girls Texting and we'll see you next week. Bye.